service, we'll be partaking of communion, and then after the service, uh, the koinonia meal together as we fellowship. But uh, let's get into God's Word, shall we? Would you stand with me? As we take a look at Acts chapter 4, the final uh, verses 32 through 37, the final six verses of the chapter. Just follow along, please, as I read from the New King James Version of God's Word. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joses, or Joseph in most translations, uh, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Father, we pray that you would pour your spirit out upon this place and upon every heart that is here. Lord, that we would gain understanding of these things and how it applies to us today. Here in, in Southern California in 2022, as your church, help us, Lord, to gain wisdom, to gain insights, Lord, to gain understanding, and, Lord, the insight to apply these things to our own lives today. Have your way in us. We love you. We thank you. And ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we look at this passage this morning, it really is the first part of two, two different parts, in which we see this issue of giving and helping those who had need, who have need, as we will pick up next time, next week in chapter 5, the first 11 verses, we see uh, the names Ananias and Sapphira very much related to what we are reading today. Although there's a contrast that is given. There's a contrast that's given between verses 32 and 37, and one example, one man who is an example of what is described in 32 through 35. This, of course, is, is the man we know as Barnabas. We'll see more about him later in the book of Acts, but we see that Luke determines to introduce Barnabas to us here in this particular passage as he was following the ways of the Lord and following what was taking place there in the church as they had this heart to give to one another. A heart that is such that they would even sell their possessions in order to meet the needs of people within the church. We will be talking a lot about that, of course, during this particular study. But we find here that in the previous uh, passages, as, as, we, as we saw up through verse 31, beginning in the first verse of chapter 3, this, this 
incident of this lame man that, uh, who had been laid by the, the gate called Beautiful on a daily basis. He would be there asking for alms and so forth. And, and all that took place during those, in, in those two chapters, basically, almost two full chapters devoted to this one incident. We, we, we see that toward the end of that, that the apostles, John and Peter in particular, had been called into accountability with the Sanhedrin, the, this body of, of, of leaders among, among the Jews. Uh, they were called to account, who gives you the right to do this? You know, how did this happen and so forth? They gave all the credit to Jesus, of course. It is through the name of Jesus that this man has been made whole and so forth. And then they were just simply let go because of the pressure of the people because they were marveling because of the, 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 the wonder of this miracle that had, been, that had taken place. They knew this man. He had been lame from birth. He was over 40 years old at this point in time. And now he's walking. He's, he's jumping and leaping, or walking and leaping and praising God, uh, walking with James, or excuse me, John and Peter into the temple to worship God for the first time in his life, able to do so. I'm mean, just an incredible, incredible thing. And, and yet, the... Jewish leaders, as, as they did when Jesus was, was walking among them and doing his work and teaching his doctrine, just not happy, not happy about that. And it, isn't it mind-blowing to you guys that, that these men, supposedly God-fearing people, cannot have a spirit of joy when someone is healed? You know, it's just an amazing, an amazing thing. But we see that taking place. The bottom line, though, we see Satan using the Jewish leaders to attack the church to get them to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. And, of course, we saw at the end of that passage, uh, as we got toward, uh, well, verse 29. Let's read verses 29 to 31. We, we see the end of this prayer that they prayed. Now, verse 29, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. That's just a marvelous, marvelous, unselfish, sacrificial prayer. They're praying that they would be able to do what God had called them to do even in the face of the threats. By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so that prayer was answered. God gave his approval of that prayer through this shaking of the building. We don't know if an actual earthquake took place. We're not told, but the building shook. After they prayed, they all were filled with the Holy Spirit, and guess what? They received boldness. They had boldness to speak the word of God. Might that be our prayer? Even in the face of threats that may come to us, in the face of opposition that comes to us, and our culture is filled with opposition against the truth of God's word, isn't it? Might we have boldness? And might we stand, and regardless of whatever the threat may be, Let's remember, we are part of a different kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, isn't it? 
We are not of the kingdom of this world. We are of the kingdom of God while we are in the world. And so we've got to expect the, the warfare. We've got to expect the spiritual warfare that, to take place. Because bottom line is this. While we are of the kingdom of God, walking in this world, which belongs to another, Satan being the ruler of this age, we're really fighting behind enemy lines. And so we can, affect, we, we can expect trouble. And again, as Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And beginning that verse there in John 16, 33, one of my favorites, I quote it often, but, but it's so real. And I just love the fact that this comes right at the end of Jesus speaking to his apostles on the night before he was crucified, what we call the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 to 16 there in the book of John. At the end of chapter 16, his final words to his apostles before he is crucified. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We must expect problems in this world. Many things Jesus said about that within that, that, that discourse there in the upper room. We don't have time to go any further than that, but that's just something that's so important for us. Well, these followers of Jesus understood that. They prayed for boldness. And, and so they received it and they spoke the word of God with boldness there as we see in verse 31. Now verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Let's take a look at this, this verse because we see here uh, something that perhaps we would not expect to see based on the previous passage because that was all about this prayer. This is all about them asking for boldness to speak God's word. And now all of a sudden we see something speak, spoken or written by, by, uh, by Luke of the oneness, the unity of the church at this time and the result of that unity being that they were sharing their, their wealth with one another. I mean, it, it truly was. I mean, th this is socialism. That's what it is. But it's voluntary socialism. It is something that took place because of the unity and the love that they experienced. Pastor Chuck Smith said this. He said, the Spirit of God works in an environment of love and unity. And here, at the very beginning of the church, there was glorious unity. One heart and one soul. Might that be said of us? The church today. And if not the, if not the church in its entirety, this local fellowship, might we be of one heart and one soul in our desire to see God honored and God glorified and a willingness to do his work, whatever the cost may be. To serve him, to serve one another. To love him, to love one another. Th th those two greatest commandments, right? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. Those are the two greatest commands. 
And so might we be intent on following those commands? But the, the unity is so very important. We are to be united under the banner of the name of Jesus Christ. United for him, looking to him. And because of him, looking to one another to meet one another's needs in our love for one another. It's that kind of love that is being expressed here. And by the way, even as we enter into this this morning, I do want to make this comment on this. This, What we see here in terms of this voluntary socialism, it's a result of love. And in the early church, we saw this taking place here in this passage. But it didn't last long. And quite frankly, because of the condition of the human heart, it can't. If there is going to be a socialism among us as people, it's going to be forced, as it is in many areas of the world today. And we, we see that beginning to raise its ugly head today in terms of socialism itself is not ugly, but when it's forced upon us, it is. If it's voluntary, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And certainly, the, the Word of God, the New Testament, as well as the Old, speak about how we are to care for one another. And, and their love for God and their love for each other was so great that they were willing to sell their possessions to help each other out. And so we really do see the rich sharing with the poor. But it was voluntary out of love. This is not something that is mandated for the church. This is intended to show us the, the reality of their love for each other. And because of that love, they cared for each other, even to the point that they didn't care about their possessions. They would, they would sell their possess possessions, give the, the money away, so that those who had need among the fellowship had their, mets, their, their needs met. That's what we see here. It's a voluntary thing. Very, very important aspect of this. James chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. We, we see a, a verse that speaks about what happens because of the reality of the human heart. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, and we're going to see kind of a form of this, this self-seeking, especially next week in the first part of chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. But if you have envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Now let me ask you a question. Where do you see envy and self-seeking? In our culture, where do we see envy and self-seeking? Just about everywhere, don't we? Just about everywhere. Our, our culture promotes self-seeking. Have it your way. Right? It's your thing. Do what you want to do. I mean, this is, that's a very old thing. Some of you remember that, though. Some of you remember that. Who remembers that song? Okay. Oh, come on. Some of you, some of you remember that song. Did not re raise your hands. You're being envious and self-seeking right now. 
You don't want to, you don't want people to know how old you are. Anyway. You know, our, it's our culture. It promotes selfishness. It promotes self-seeking. Look out for number one. Even to the point that even within the church, I, I, I hear these things. That, you know, if, if you're going to love other people, you've got to love yourself first. No. No. That's not what the Bible says. That is our adversary, the devil, twisting the word of, word of God to something that we can be more compliant with. It is hard to love people. It is hard to put other people ahead of yourself. It is hard to look at others as more important than yourself. It takes the Spirit of God with the guidance of the Word of God in order to do that. But that's what God calls us to, and that's exactly what Jesus did. You know, I, I, this is not in my notes. I don't intend to go there. I didn't intend to go there. I'll just mention, read again Philippians chapter 2, the, the first eight verses in particular. The humility of Jesus shown to us as an example of what it means to make other people more important than yourself. That always blows, I mean, I don't have time to do that. But an incredible, incredible passage. As we see this passage here in Acts 4, 32 through 37, you know, we can't help but notice how similar it is to a passage that we went through some time ago in chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. Those verses read this way. Now, all who believe, now, now let me pause for a moment. That was right after the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Toward the end of that second chapter, when the church was birthed, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, and, and they spoke in tongues and so forth. G, uh, uh, Peter gave his very first message there at that time. 3,000 uh, 3, souls were saved during the, uh, on that day. But then a comment about what was going on with the church as a result. That really is verses 42 to 47. But in 44 to 47, we see, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. You see, Luke saw fit to include that there right after the Spirit was poured out upon the church. And here as the Spirit is working within the church. So continuing daily, verse 46, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The best way for evangelism to take place is when you and I are truly walking in the Spirit of God, being the church, loving Christ and loving one another, taking care of each other, 
And we see, and we, we see those words, gladness and simplicity of heart. They received their food. They ate their food in that way. There, there, there was a, a simple-mindedness in the, in the sense of a, a, a singular focus. That's the idea, the singular focus being Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being the singular focus. This word common that we see both in Acts chapter 2 and here in chapter 4, the Greek word is koinos. Does that sound familiar? Today is koinonia Sunday. You know, it, it, it's the root word of koinonia, common. The literal meaning of this, the, this word is shared by all or by several. So it's something that is in common to all. And these early believers in the church saw their possessions as such that they weren't just simply investments for themselves. They became investments that God would use for the blessing and benefit for all around them within the church. But that's the root word of this. And I want you to note the phrases here that we see in these verses. Those who believed. This would be all the brothers and sisters in the faith there. One heart and one soul, as we see here in this 32nd verse. Speaking of the soul being the seat of the feelings, the desires, affections, and aversion. That, that's just the, 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 the ourselves at the deepest level, the deepest level of our being, really. His own. Nobody saw their possessions as their own. Why not? It, it, didn't, it wasn't that it belonged to everybody. That's not the idea. It doesn't belong to everybody. It belongs to God. It belongs to God. That's the idea. And we are to be uh, stewards of all that God has given to us. And when, if you've got more than enough for yourself and your family, God may choose to instruct you to share that more than enough, and maybe even a part of what's yours, so that it's a sacrificial kind of a thing. We, we, we hear about sacrificial giving. That means there's going to be a cost, and it's going to hurt a little bit. It's going to hurt a little bit. Sacrifice does, right? It's worth, we, we like the word sacrifice when we see other people doing it, but not when we have to do it. Right? But the point is that God will call us to share what he's given to us with others who have need. That, that's the point of this passage. All things in common. Then verse 33, look at this. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You'd, you'd think that that verse would be right after verse 31. Verse 31 is when we see they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were given boldness. But first, Luke chooses to, to write about the condition of the church at that time and in the way that they were taking care of each other. Then we see with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. What a great verse. Great power and great grace. Great power was, is descriptive of the way that the apostles were giving witness, not just simply giving witness to Jesus Christ, but giving witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That is a very, very important point. I think it's something all of us need to kind of step back and think. It's like, okay, when I talk about Jesus, do I, do I talk about him as a risen Savior? I mean, even, even, even Jesus himself we see in Revelation. Revelation 1.18, as Jesus is addressing John, who wrote Revelation, who received this Revelation, Jesus said, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades of, and death. And then the next chapter, in the letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus it says this, John wrote this, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, and this is what Jesus says, these things says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, was dead and came to life. Jesus testified of himself as the one who had died and came to life. The early church spoke of the resurrection, and we see that as a common theme in the, in the sermons in the book of Acts. The resurrection is, is hit on often. It's a main point. The question for us is this, do we remember to do that? Do we just speak about the blessings that God gives to us? It's like, no, no, wait a minute. There was a man, God manifest in the flesh, but a man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for the sins of the world. He was sacrificed as the Lamb of God for us, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. Just four weeks ago today, we celebrated Easter. Have we forgotten that already? Is it just one of those things that we celebrate, and then we just kind of go on with our lives without thinking of the power of the resurrection, that resurrection power that is within us, the life that we have? You see, we have life because Jesus is alive. We have life because he's in us as a risen Savior. Risen means that he was dead and he rose again. That's such an important point, isn't it? We've got to talk about that with other people. And other people might say, do you really believe that? Well, absolutely, I believe it. That's what the Word of God says. But it's a, it is an established historical fact. But people don't want to receive that as history. They want to receive it as some kind of a spiritual message or even something that may have been written that didn't really take place, but there's a message behind it, so that's why it's there. No, Jesus was murdered through crucifixion, but he rose from the dead on the third day. And he's alive today. He's alive forevermore, even as he told John. Isn't that true? Let's be sure we speak about that. As we share with others around us, Jesus was dead. He now is alive. And as we go to the gospel accounts, Matthew in particular, we see that the leaders went through great pains to try to keep Jesus in that place of being dead. Even to the point that they bribed the soldiers who saw the, 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 this angel and, and, and all that, that took place during that passage you know, they bribed them to keep quiet about the fact that that tomb was empty, that the, the stone had been rolled away, angels were there, we didn't see the body of Jesus anywhere, it's, it's gone. And don't you think 
that the culture would have somehow found the body of Jesus if they could have? How hard did they try to find that body? We're not, that's not mentioned really in the scriptures. But a group of people who were try, trying to keep the truth of the resurrection uh, from, from spreading, if they could have found that body, they would have. You can believe that they tried to. Why couldn't they find it? It wasn't around. Because he was raised. He's a risen Savior. Let's take the time to talk about it. Because most people don't want to be believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So they celebrate Easter with Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and things like that. Rather than the fact that we serve a risen Savior. Great power. The idea of great power here in verse 33 really speaks about the effectiveness of the message. Because they spoke of a risen Christ, and the apostles themselves saw, they saw, they, they walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They saw him crucified. They saw him after he had been raised from the dead. They saw him ascend into the heavens. Eyewitnesses, Paul in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about how there was one instance in which 500 believers saw Jesus in resurrected form at one time. And he adds, most of them are still alive to this day. Go and find him and ask him, talk to him about it, basically. In our age of history revisionism, in our age in which there is no absolute truth, why do you think the God of this age has placed these kinds of, of, of philosophies into our system, into our culture, to keep us from believing the resurrection of Jesus? Why else? Why else? Because he wants to see as many people destroyed as possible. And he does so through his lives through his lives, doctrines of demons. These apostles, in fact, all who were in that room, going back to verse 31, in that, during that prayer, they were, they were filled with the Spirit. Being refilled, we see that they were given power. Power to effectively walk with Jesus. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Do, 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 you, do you have that note on the notes there with you? You guys, you have it. I copied the wrong notes. I don't have that. I'm turning there. You can read the screen. But turn in your Bibles, though. I, 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 I think that's an important passage to look at and to make sure it's highlighted because in that, in that passage we see the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit is given... He gives certain kinds of fruit. There's, there are certain manifestations of the reality of His being with us, in us and upon us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The word fruit is singular. The fruit is love. 
And these other words that follow love are different aspects of, of, uh, of the way that that love will manifest itself in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit active in the early church as they were so selfless that they were willing to sell their possessions for the sake of others so that they could have something to eat, right? The fruit of the Spirit, very active. We also see the definition of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just a couple of books. You got First and Second Corinthians just before Galatians. But 1 Corinthians 13, what we call the love chapter, right? Beginning in verse 4, look at this. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. That's the opposite of what we just read out of James, right? Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. We're going to find Ananias and Sapphira parading themselves through a lie that they told because they wanted to, to, to appear to be better than they actually were. We'll get to that next time. Verse 5, love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, Never uh, love never fails, or love never comes to an end. That's why we see in John 13, 1, when we see that Jesus loved them to the uttermost, loved them to the very end. That's because it was true love. It never ends. And we will ask questions, well, how long am I supposed to be patient with this person? To the very end. So if I kill him, I can stop? <laughs> you know, I, I mean... <laughs> We can get kind of out of sorts with this kind of thing. <laughs> to the very end, love never fails. And as you've heard before, I'll, I'll say it this time, when, when, we, when we place Jesus' name in the place of the word love, it fits and it flows very, very nicely. But you try to put your name in there, and it's like, oh, well, no, uh, uh, doesn't work. Now, maybe we, we could say that, well, like the very first thing, love suffers long. That, that speaks about, I mean, that's long-suffering, which is basically patience or endurance with people. Patience is endurance with situations and things. Long-suffering is enduring with people, loving them to the very end. We might be able to say, well, I, I think I'm doing better than that with that now than I was a few years ago. I hope so. But can that be something that actually defines you? Right? And as I'm looking at you, it's like, uh, it doesn't work for any of us, really. It doesn't define us. But God help us to be more and more that because we see that God's purpose in our lives is that we become more and more conformed to the image 
of Jesus Christ, just more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means, being set apart to become more like Jesus. That, that's God's plan for each one of our lives. It's because of the reality of God's Holy Spirit, the love that he was shedding abroad, abroad in, the, in their hearts, and the way that they responded to that, that we can see that they acted this way, as uh, Luke describes it here in this passage. Again, they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Can't help but think of Acts 1.8, when Jesus said to his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we as his followers are to be witnesses for him now. Not just simply do witnessing. We have our street witnessing team and they do witnessing, but it's got to come from a heart that is being conformed to the image of Christ, that we are changing and we become witnesses. And as witnesses, we do the witnessing as witnesses. And, and of course, that, that's what was taking place there. Acts 1.8 was becoming more and more and more true. Now, we don't see that here. We don't see these words here. It says, Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Upland, California today is a part of that end of the earth. The apostles never made it here. But the Holy Spirit did. Holy Spirit in us, right? We are those witnesses here today. And they gave witness to Jesus as their risen Savior, as their risen King. Not only was there great power, but great grace. Oh, we need the grace of God. We need the grace of God. You know, and we, we have a tendency in the way that we live our lives, the way that we just are uh, understanding of things, about the, the way that the, the world works, the way that relationships work and so forth. You know, grace is a word that, that is really, grace is a word that's foreign to the human mind apart from the reality of God's Spirit being active in us. It really is. Because the way that you and I normally think is like, well, you know, I'll, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. You know, I mean, th th there's very little that would be given without any strings attached or that hasn't been earned somehow. You know, the reason I'm treating you this way is because of what you did to me last week. The reason I'm being somewhat mean and evil and speaking these things to you that you don't like is because, well, you don't deserve to be treated any better than that. Well, well grace doesn't, it has nothing to do with what's deserved. Nothing to do whatsoever. Another, another passage, Acts I mean, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there with me. Again, it just came to my mind right now. We're going to go there, Ephesians chapter 4. I, I think it's in the, the, the last verses in chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning with verse 17 and forward to verse 32, an incredible passage that speaks about the way that we ought to be treating one another. But look at verse um, 29. Ephesians 
Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. In other words, nothing that is going to tear people down. Corruption is something just kind of falling apart, becoming corroded, right? No. No corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. What's edification? Building up. Rather than tearing down with your words, build up with your words. That's what this is saying, right? Look at this. That it may impart grace to the hearers. We can always find a reason to not be kind to somebody if we are operating under the flesh. But if we're operating under the Spirit of God, no. There is no reason not to give grace and not to be kind. And this passage ends with Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Be kind. I love that 32nd verse. I, and you guys have heard me say before, you know, if, if, if Ephesians 4.32 were really, really being followed by every single believer, well, let's just say every person followed that. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Our relationships would be changed. Families would be changed. Churches would be changed. Cultures would be changed. You know, we hear about random acts of kindness. No. Deliberate acts of kindness always. That's what the Bible teaches. Back over to Acts chapter 4. No one had any lack there. No one had lack because of the fact that those who had possessions had become so selfless out of their love for God and love for each other that their own gain and their own wealth didn't matter anymore because their hearts had been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their hearts had been changed because of the reality of what Jesus had done for them. What Jesus had done for them. Previously, this fellowship, this koinonia, was centered on the, the spiritual aspect. They were praying that, that, they would help, that, that God would help them to do things. In fact, in, in verse 31, you know, they, they prayed for boldness to preach the word of God. But now, that desire translated also out of love for God, now love for each other, to become something that affected their material possessions. And so intent were they on meeting each other's needs that they had no concern for gratifying their own desires. Weren't concerned about cutting into their retirement package. Because the need right now that this family has is greater than that. I mean, do we believe that God actually provides for us? Is he Jehovah Jireh? Yeah, I believe that God provides for me, and I think God will provide for them, so let them pray. God will provide for them. Aren't we being shown here that God provides for others through us? 
who may have something to offer. Now, there are the poor who don't have, but there are the rich who do. And let's face it, we as Americans, we are in the top 5% of the world in terms of our wealth. The poorest American is, has more wealth than 95% of the world. We get too focused on our own culture, don't we? No, God wants to use you. He wants to use me to have something to give. In fact, you know, going back to that fourth chapter in Ephesians, there's a verse there that has some, a lot to do with this. It, it doesn't have to do with those who are rich in particular, but notice this. In chapter 4, look at verse 28. It has to do with the changed heart of a, of, of a thief. In verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Why? That he may have something to give him who has need. Interesting. Stop stealing from other people and work so that you can have something to give to others who have need. Isn't that interesting? Well, back over to Acts chapter 4. We do find in these verses that a very practical test of a Christian's love is how much he or she is willing to sacrifice financially. Whether it is the regular tithing on a regular basis or giving to others who have need. And certainly the tithing is a part of that, but not solely that. James 2, verses 14 to 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, I'll pray for you. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that, that was a very practical work that is mentioned by James that ought to be done by those who have faith in Christ. Meet the needs of others around us who, who truly have need. And, and we'll, we'll go through this thing. Well, does a person really, really have need, you know, and, and all this? It's like, you know, this is about generosity. At some level, sometimes, it's like, you know what? Whether this person is straight up or not, I don't know. That's their thing. One thing I know about, about my relationship with God is that he wants me to be generous. You know, we, we will stand as judge and jury d judging whether a person really has a need or not, you know. And sometimes, I, I mean, th through, through the proven uh, history w with a person, it can, be, it can be, be shown to us. And so we, perhaps it, it is okay for us to hold back. But we've got to be careful with that because we can reach a point where really what we're doing is being selfish rather than generous. Don't we have to be careful about that? We've got to be careful. What kind of faith is it that won't help somebody 
who has a need. When we have something to meet that need. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 writes this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, look how this is connected. Laying down our lives for the brethren connected to our goods. Notice that. And sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? That's a great question. That's a great question. Note the reference to our brothers and sisters in these two, in these two passages. That means people within the church in particular. Um, that's the intent of Acts chapter 4. The idea of, of giving. Warren Wiersbe wrote, It is the spirit of the, their giving that is important to us today and not the letter of their system. Because people will ask, so is the church today supposed to become like, like, a, like a commune? Everybody just kind of dwelling together and sharing with one another and so forth? Well, well no, not, not, not by structure. But the idea, again, as we shared already, is the heart with which we are functioning. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Especially to those who are the household of faith. Especially to believers. Those who belong to Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are the first to, who are to receive from us as we treat them with goodness and kindness and share with them material wealth that we may have first. This would seem to indicate that if we have family, apart from our church family, but our, our biological family, they don't know the Lord, but one of them has a need. Our church family, one of them has a need, especially those who are the household of faith, who are we supposed to give to first? There's a challenge for us there. I'm just saying, that's what it says. That's what it says. That's how radically our view of things needs to change as believers in Jesus Christ. We talk about family first, church family first. That seems to be what the New Testament is saying. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 5, we see these words. Now, this is later, this is years later, when Jerusalem, the, the church in Jerusalem was suffering because of a, of, of a drought in the area. And here we see Paul writing to the church in Corinth. They're in Macedonia, Greece. Moreover, verse 1, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness, actually Corinth was not in Macedonia, that was up in the area where Philippi uh, is, but Cor uh, Corinth was down in the southern part of Greece. But he speaks of the Macedonians and how they gave. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. What a great verse that is. 
For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. That second verse, great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, deep poverty, riches of their liberality. Then following that, in verses 8 and 9 there in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. By pointing out the diligence of the churches in Macedonia, I'm testing the reality, the sincerity of your love by asking you, not commanding you, but by asking you to set something aside for the churches in Jerusalem. That's what he's saying there. For you know, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. And Jesus himself is cited as the example. Though he was rich, he became poor that we might receive his riches. Might we who have do the same for others who do not have. That's the heart behind all of this. This way of life became something that was continuous for the early church, something that was an example to others around them. And, and now in verse 36 and 37, we see Luke singling, singling out one particular man, Joseph, who received the nickname from the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That's the name we know him by. And as we see this example and other things taking place later, we see why. Because it was, of course, uh, Barnabas who took Saul of Tarsus after he was converted on that road to Damascus. When he came to Jerusalem, it was Barnabas who took him under his arm and introduced him to the church there in Jerusalem. They were afraid of him because of Saul of Tarsus. He was persecuting the church. And Barnabas was saying, no, wait a minute, he's been changed. He really met Jesus. He really is one of us now. The son of encouragement, even to the apostles themselves. And he became a, com a companion of, of the apostle Paul and missionary journeys and so forth. We'll see more of that later in the book of Acts. We can't help but think of Mark chapter 12, verse 43 to 44, in which Jesus said this to his disciples. After watching the, the poor widow drop her measly offering into that offering box, even after the rich were pouring into the, the coins and so forth, as loud as they could make it, so they could be seen and heard by others. He said this, he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who gave who have given to the treasury. All those combined, not more than each one, more than all of them. That's what that means. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had. 
This tells us that, that the value of a gift is not determined by the amount of it, the size of it, but it's determined by the spirit into which it is given. A gift that is given grudgingly or a gift that is given for recognition, we'll see that with Ananias and Sapphira, it loses its value. And it's pleasing to God when it's given out of a heart of gratitude and a spirit of generosity. But guys, we must look at the gift that we've received through Jesus Christ. He, as God, of course, is our provider. But at the same time, He was made poor. He was rich, but became poor that we might receive riches out of His poverty. We've received life. Now, there's a point in which we need to determine what's really important. Is it the material or is it the spiritual? Is it the material or is it the souls of men? Is it the material or is it the honor and glory of God? We have to make those choices. And we come to a place of, of understanding and determining, even as Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. Let's hear that, church. Take, he take care and heed, or take, excuse me, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. I don't care how many bumper stickers you see, it is not true that the one who dies with the most ten, uh, toys wins. Life does not consist of the things that a person possesses. But in our materialist, covetous culture, that is a doctrine that is preached to us. We must beware. Job 121, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, we, we've seen what has been given to us taken away a number of times with recessions, bank accounts, or retirement, retirement accounts dwindling. Inflation hitting us. God help us to get to a place where we understand that in the end, it really doesn't matter. When we come face to face with Jesus, he's not going to ask us, how, how frugal were you? Did you save? Did you make sure you had enough in your account to take care of your family? I'm not saying those are bad things, but that's not the issue. The issue is who is Jesus? What's he done? Are you preaching him to others? Are you preaching through your very lives that you live, that you show that things that used to be important to you are not important anymore because it is a spiritual value that we hold dear? It is the, the souls of men and women and children. It is the glory and honor of God 
through Jesus Christ, his son. That's what matters. Why? Because of what Jesus did for us. And we're going to remember what Jesus did for us right now as we celebrate communion. We're going to take part in remembering what Jesus did. I want to close with this one verse, this one passage before we do. In Matthew 6, verses 19 and 21, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's our treasure? And Father, as we consider this, we pray that you'd have your way with our hearts. Have your way in doing your work of, of changing us. God, we need to be changed. We acknowledge that. We are not what we want to be. As we read your word, we, we, we see the selfishness that still is there. We see the covetousness that rears, rears its ugly head. We see the self-seeking. We see these things. This is a part of our fleshly nature, but we also see the work that your spirit is doing, the work that your word is doing. And God, we want to be those who seek you in a very real way and desire that you change us and make us more into the image of Jesus, more sacrificial, more giving, more loving all that he is. Help us, God. Right now, we want to focus on you, Lord Jesus, and what you did for us. As we have these elements in our hands, this, this bread and this cup, we understand the reality of the meaning of it. As we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to read beginning in verse 23. the things of Christ and what he did, even as Paul wrote of this. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on and writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're going to take a moment now and examine our own hearts.